From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. We can feed the world better through these perennial staple tree crops than we're managing to feed the world now through soybeans and corn and wheat, which have really harsh environmental consequences as well as nutritional and ecological. This week on the show, we talk with Julia Valiant and Olivia Shoemaker about their research into growing tree nut crops and what it can mean for Midwestern agriculture. And we visit a Yupik orchard to gather seasonal treats. That story's just ahead. Stay with us. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. No, this is not our Christmas episode. I don't usually do that. This story is about what's roasting on the open fire. That's right, chestnuts. Until recently, that song was really my only association with chestnuts. But this fall, I had the chance to explore a chestnut grove right here in Indiana. My neighbor and friend, Julia Valiant, happens to be a researcher with the Sustainable Food Systems Science Group at Indiana University. She's got an interest in chestnut growers in the Midwest, and she invited me out to a Yupik orchard to check it out. I'm a sucker for foraging of any kind, really. Mushrooms, berries, persimmon, pawpaw. I almost never have the chance to gather tree nuts. We headed up to Anderson Orchard on a Sunday morning in September. Peak apple picking and pumpkin patch season. Even at 9 a.m., the parking lot was filling up and the playground was populated with sweater-clad youngsters and their plaid-flanneled parents. Anderson Orchard is a shining example of agritourism, The place serves as an attractive destination for families to experience all things autumnal and seasonally picturesque. The dwarf apple trees make for easy hand-picking. They have a pumpkin patch where families can pick out their own jack-o'-lanterns for carving. But we were there for the chestnuts. Julia had heard this was the last weekend for those, and we didn't want to miss out. Chestnuts aren't really the main attraction for most visitors to Anderson Orchard. Julia had heard from the owners that folks originally from East Asian countries are the primary customers. We picked up bags from a table at the edge of the orchard and got directions to the nut tree grove. See that great big tree right there? Yeah. If you headed towards that, they're right. You got to go just down the hill and there's a bunch of them there. Okay. Or you can walk out here. Go to the first road, you can turn, gravel road, you can make a right turn on, and that'll take you to a mosque, so it'll be on your right side. Yeah, if I was walking back there, I would cut right through the trees. Okay, we're going to cut through the trees. Yeah, if that's your shortest way right there. Just keep walking for the big tree. We trudged through the rows of short-statured apple trees laden with perfect-looking fruit. It was difficult to walk past them without picking, but we stayed focused. After about a 
five-minute walk, the chestnut grove came into view. Next to the tiny apples, the chestnut trees were towering and majestic. Their large branches formed a canopy, a shady sort of tall tunnel. Right away, we saw a couple of women gathering nuts around the bases of the trees. They both wore gloves, and one had a pair of kitchen tongs. We introduced ourselves to Lenine and her mother. Are you finding any? Yeah. Chestnuts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not we've many, never but... We've never done this before, so we have no idea. Yeah, this is my first time, too. Oh, really? Yeah. <gasps> look so, at all those. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. OK, so you just look around. Uh, Hi. Yeah, <laughs> I just see. Yeah. Oh, my god. Yeah, oh, gosh. Can we take a picture? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you said you can shake the tree, but it's too, too big for us to shake. Funny, yeah, yeah, that seems so. Those branches are too high. Yeah. They drove down from Carmel for the harvest, and we asked how they like to cook the chestnuts. Um, you bake them, or you can make soup. My dad actually make um, well the chickens mix well with chestnuts. Oh. Uh, also beef is good, and but you can just cut it open and put some sugar or honey on the top and put it in the oven. And when it's, when it's pop up, it's very sweet. <laughs> I like the roasted, but my dad already had a plan to make some chicken soup out of it. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is my first time too. Um, my friend came over yesterday and she said she got a bunch. So I like just, just pick whatever on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I had never seen a chestnut tree. This is my first time. I, I have oh, okay. been always eating this. Because <laughs> yeah. in China, it grow in the mountain area, rural area. I grew up in the cities. And my neighborhood definitely don't, doesn't have those. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think on the east coast or west coast in China, they grow a bunch of this. Mm -hmm. And in the harvest season, it's seasonal. I think it's coming out this until winter time. Then it's gone. And, uh, and people just sell them roasted. Yeah. yeah, I like them. Yeah. Yeah, I've only ever had them roasted. I think. Yeah. Americans, European Americans, usually the tradition is just roasting them around Christmas time. Oh, you actually eat this? I saw yeah. American doesn't eat this. Just. Yeah. It's a holiday thing because okay. there's like a Christmas song that has chestnuts roasting. Oh. In it. <laughs> so that's yeah. uh, that. That's the only, and I've never had them any other way, really. Yeah. So. Yeah, my dad makes soups. I, it's just the whole thing. You peel them off and then put it into the soup. Um, and you just kind of cook for a few hours. Then it has some flavor. And ch chestnut itself has very special texture. Uh -huh. So, yeah. yeah. It does yeah, have a really unique texture. Yeah. Yeah. I, could, I can picture it in a soup. I just have never had it. Lynn <laughs> tried to give us some of what she harvested, but I assured her we could find some of our own. No, 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 it's okay. We'll find She tried to insist. Come on, come on. Just take some. We're good, yeah. we're, we're good foragers. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so All much. Right. I appreciate it. And thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Just no on the spot. But yeah. thank you. Uh, nice meeting you guys. Have a nice day. You too. It took some hunting, kicking leaves around, and even shaking some branches, but I did manage to find a few chestnuts. Often, when they fall from the tree, they're free from their spiky hull, and you can just grab the shiny brown nuts. 
but some of them were in their protective armor, and it was painful to try to free them with my bare hands. We ran into another forager, Hwasan. She's originally from South Korea, and she lives in Bloomington with her husband, Ricky. They came to the orchard for apples, but were thrilled to find the chestnut trees. Hwasan was impressed with my haul. Oh, yeah, she's a real good. Yeah, she showed us good. a trick for freeing the nuts from the prickly no. shell. Oh, you just, I was using a stick. See, you and no, stepping on it. Yes, yeah, just you open it like this. Okay, open it like this. Okay. Awesome. See, look. Okay. You open it. Okay. It's like this. Hassan puts one foot on either side of the nut and works it back and forth to loosen the shell. Once the nut emerges, she reaches down and grabs it without getting stuck by the sharp spikes. I asked her how she prepares the okay. chestnuts. Just the bottom here, just the, the slash, you know, just the skin, skin slashy. Uh -huh. Then, uh, then go to oven at uh, maybe 400 degrees and uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes. If you bake, then you can eat. You ready okay, to so eat. you just roast them. Yeah, I roast. You don't yeah. cook them any other uh -uh, way. Uh -uh. Okay. She says if the shell is too tough to cut, she boils them, peels them, and eats them plain. In South Korea, they're sold roasted as street food, but at home, she says people usually boil them. She says they're a popular food for the Korean Thanksgiving, which takes place around the time of the autumn equinox. As we were leaving, there was some question about whose chestnut stash was whose. This is yours? Um, oh, this is her. That's your. Are this is hers? I don't know. Or is this hers? This is mine. This I, I think this is mine. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, because mine had the light ones in it. Yeah, this is mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still wondering if Poisson accidentally ended up with my hard won treasure. But by the time we got up to pay, it didn't matter. There was extra at the table for purchase. Apparently, when Lenine brought her haul to be weighed, the price per pound was too high for her. She'd seen them cheaper at the store. Uh, yeah, 12 pounds. Yeah, so it's pretty good. Uh, I saw they're selling it for cheaper, but they're selling more expensive, so I just decided I'd just go to the store kind of. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, but I had fun here, so yeah. Yeah, it was, it was fun picking them. Yeah. She just walked away. Julia and I could not believe it. I bought a couple of her pounds to supplement my meager collection. And like Lenine, I too had fun at the Chestnut Grove. After a short break, we'll talk with Julia Valiant and her colleague Olivia Shoemaker about their research on tree nut crops in Indiana. Stay with us. visit to the chestnut grove out at Anderson Orchard, I wanted to learn more about the possibilities for tree nut crops in Indiana. I invited Julia Valiant into the studio, along with her fellow researcher, Olivia Shoemaker, to hear about their project. I am Julia Valiant. 
I'm a researcher with our Sustainable Food System Science Group here on campus at IU, and I'm a scientist with that group. I'm Olivia Shoemaker. I'm a research assistant with the Indiana Tree Nuts Project out of the Sustainable Food System Science Group at IU, and I'm also involved with various other food activities in Bloomington. Our Sustainable Food System Science Group on campus we are a young group that's been around for just a handful of years. We're an interdisciplinary group of scholars and researchers from various social science disciplines. So we focus on learning mainly from people about how things are going with food. From the food production end of the spectrum, we do a lot of research with farmers, learning from farmers how their work is going, all the way to the eating or consumption end of the spectrum, where we learn from people how accessing food, eating how they want to eat, is going for them. And everyone in between, the people who are aggregating food, distributing food, selling food, marketing food, making rules about food. And so we have people from anthropology, history, sociology, economics, public health, numerous disciplines, geography. And we place a big focus on Indiana, at the same time, we have studies all around the world. One of our youngest studies that Olivia and I have been working on for the past year is learning from people around Indiana who are doing any kind of work around raising and selling tree nuts that do grow very well in Indiana. But we don't even have, like our, our industries around chestnuts, hazelnuts, and pecans all of which are native to Indiana and can grow well here. These industries are not even in their infancy. These staple foods or staple tree crops that have always been here are at the moment not something that many people in Indiana are doing, and we'd like to see more people raising tree crops in Indiana. So tree nuts in Indiana, you said it's in its infancy, and you would like to see it grow, why does this matter? Why, why do we want more tree nuts? Why, why would this make sense for our state in terms of the agriculture? Well, a few major reasons, one of which is climate change. So what's a thing that the planet Earth needs more of is trees. And there are numerous staple tree crops that have been displaced as a focus of production agriculture. So what do you mean by production agriculture? I mean our dominant approach to agriculture, both in Indiana and the United States and around the world, inspired by discoveries of the Green Revolution and exciting achievements during that time in how much we can grow when we're focusing on growing these monocultures of crops like soybeans and corn that grow really well in Indiana. People were excited by those developments and over time began to recognize unintended consequences of those models, drawbacks of those models that rely on these annual crops that need to be sown every year. So the appeal or the benefits of tree crops have really come into focus as these perennial plants that are very good for the ecosystem and that can be really productive as well in terms of food and nutrition. 
and that can be very productive as well in terms of people's earnings. Um, margins are very thin in commodity agriculture. It's not easy for someone raising soybeans and corn to earn the livelihood they want to earn. Um, no, no matter how big their farm is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to get bigger and bigger. I mean, I've been hearing from farmers that you need 2,000 acres to operate if you want to earn the living that you want to earn. And so alternatives to that, of which there are many that allow people to earn more from their work, are appealing. And tree crops can be one of those in time. They require an initial investment, and it takes a few years for the trees to begin to bear. But then once they do, there's a lot of promise around how much one can earn from raising tree crops. What I think Julia alludes to is the opportunity that Indiana has, not only because we have a history in terms of these trees and our foodways and in our culture and of the environmental benefits, not just for people but for wildlife as well, but also thinking in the present According to recent USDA data from an agricultural census that they did, I believe half of Indiana's land is in corn and soy. And of our total agricultural land, over 70% of that is in corn and soy and in commodity crops. And while it's worked out, and for some people it still is working, there's a lot of room for people to implement new systems and new models that have gained a lot of traction recently uh, in our surrounding states. It's funny. I mean, it's not funny to think about how much land is is devoted to corn and soybeans and how this is seen as an agricultural region. And I I had a friend recently visit from, from Texas, and he's like, we've been, you know, Google Maps took us off the road, and we've been driving, you know, through all these cornfields. And, you know, I just want to get out of the car and just go grab an ear of corn. And I was like, Oh, okay, so that's what you think this is, mm. that it's an edible crop. Right. And I think it's, I think it's a, a shocker for some people to realize these crops, while they do get made into food in some cases, um, they get made into lots of other things, and they're not edible straight off the vine or the stock or whatever. Right. And, yeah, I just I, I think it's, a, it, it's interesting to think about the state as farm, mm-hmm. as farm country, and yet to really know that this isn't this isn't really food in the sense of you put it on your table. It's something right. that I think about a lot. You're right. People think it's sweet corn <laughs> um, when it's being raised to become ethanol or to become livestock and poultry feed. So right now, there's not a whole lot of food being grown in these row crops right now. We all know some local farmers who are growing fruits and vegetables, and, and so they're that, but that's a pretty small portion of the farmland in Indiana right now. Yeah. And just to clarify those numbers, our, of our total land in Indiana, over half of it is in soybeans and corn. And of our agricultural land, which is most of our land, you know, three-quarters of that agricultural land is in beans and corn. Let's talk more about what kinds of tree nuts do well in Indiana? I don't usually think of nut growing in in Indiana, in the Midwest. Well, there are many tree crops that can grow in Indiana. And the ones that this study focuses on specifically 
are chestnut, hazelnut, pecan, walnut. Okay. English and black walnut, wild and cultivated. Okay. And those choices came to light from a poll that Julia did of the members of the Indiana Nut and Fruit Growers Association. And based on their decisions and their inputs, we thought, okay, these are the nuts that we want to focus on and that have a real potential here in our state. We also focused on them because they're the ones that seem to have the most commercial promise Mm -hmm. for people to raise them and sell them for money. We are meeting a lot of very enthusiastic hobbyists, (laughs) people who the main thing they want to do with their free time is breed trees and study tree breeding. And so people who have built over years these wonderful genetic collections on their land of fruit trees and nut trees and who are super knowledgeable, but for whom selling the nuts isn't much of a priority. We have a few commercial nut growers around the state, a couple of chestnuts, maybe one or two of hazelnuts, and several of pecans. And that's what we're finding so far of the people who are already inclined in Indiana to raise nuts and then try and sell them. Okay. And that's been a real surprise to me, at least, coming into the study, because I think, like many people I've talked to, you don't think of Indiana being a home to pecans, but they've really made a name for themselves uh, lately with the people that we've been talking to. So people can... You can get a pretty good price for nut crops compared to commodity crops, but they do take longer. What are some of the other complications or barriers? Okay, well, definitely the startup investment because it takes time before they begin to bear and yield. And during that time, you're not earning money off of your land unless you are growing another crop or raising livestock or poultry in between the young trees. Mm So there's that startup investment. And then on down the road, there are numerous obstacles, one of which is that you need to find a place to source the trees that will grow these commercially viable varieties. There are a few nurseries selling them. So that's a bottleneck. Okay. So we have figured out that there's several bottlenecks around just growing the plant itself. Uh And then there are bottlenecks later around bringing the nut to market. Definitely the need to invest in equipment and machinery is an obstacle. And we've been inspired by models that we've been learning from some of our neighboring states that have growers' cooperatives, nut growers' cooperatives for among hazelnut growers and chestnut growers. So those are people who are working together, pooling their money to invest in equipment, um, pooling their nuts, and then making their nuts into value-added products so that they can sell for more money. Okay. And they go flying off the shelves, and they're all sold out within three weeks, and their season's over until next year. Huh. So in terms of those machinery expenses, the growers' cooperatives are really intriguing, and we're beginning to learn about them. So what are the neighboring states, like Illinois? If you look on a, at it on a map, it creates a bit of a halo. Uh-huh. So to the west, Illinois, they have a chestnut cooperative. To the northwest, Wisconsin, they have a hazelnut cooperative. North in Michigan, a chestnut cooperative. They make chestnut flour. It's very popular. And then in Ohio, another chestnut cooperative. 
<laughs> and the one in Illinois is mainly in Iowa, also in Illinois. Mm. And the cooperatives have anywhere between like five and 40 members, so they range in size. So you're interested in finding ways to help promote those kind of cooperatives here in Indiana? Discover if we can form one of our own or if people would want to join the ones that already exist. American chestnuts were once a widespread native crop covering much of the eastern half of the United States and southern Ontario, Canada. It was one of the largest and fastest growing trees in the eastern forests. And because chestnut wood is straight-grained and rot-resistant, the lumber was used for fence posts, log cabins, furniture making, and even caskets. The nuts were a major food source for wildlife, livestock, and for humans. Around the turn of the 20th century, a deadly blight from Asia swept through. Here's Olivia. In about 1904 is when a fungal infection called blight was discovered in New York, actually at the Bronx Zoo, according to some reports. It may have been around before then, but that's when it was discovered. And what happened is that it was brought over by people who brought trees from Asia, chestnut trees, Japanese chestnut trees and Chinese chestnut trees. And they did fine. But when this certain infection that they carried met the American chestnut tree, it absolutely ravaged it. And it's estimated that it took out very quickly millions of trees on millions of acres. And with that, a collapse of an economy and also a cultural standing. It's not known for certain how the trees found their way to the U.S., but it was likely Americans who introduced the varieties. You know, trees that Americans had imported from other countries. There was a time of all this, you know, adventuring and discovery Mm -hmm. around plants, genetic materials, and all these, you know, American explorers bringing seeds and plants and tissues and animals here from all over the world. Okay. So it was a big trend and a an industry in itself then. Definitely. So I and think we can safely say that, you know, it would have been Americans going out and retrieving the trees and bringing them here. Definitely. And, yeah, so this was happening in all sorts of fields, and this one just happened to have a really devastating result on the chestnut, the American the ch- chestnut. And one reason it was so devastating is because people for millennia had managed for these trees because they were so valuable to their food ways. So, you know, indigenous Americans would manage woodlots and forests to support the chestnuts in growing. And that's one reason we had so many chestnuts to be devastated by the blight. It's a reason that we have so many oaks and hickories and fruit-bearing bushes. It's partially because they were take, they were occurring you know, natively, ecologically, and also because Native people were managing for them. So Um, what do you mean when you say managing for them? I mean, they were girdling or cutting down other types of trees um, that were less valuable to them or less valuable sources of forage for wildlife um, that they wanted to hunt or raise. And they were using fire to encourage the growth of certain species. 
And the chestnut would have been one very valuable type of tree for them because of the amount of food that it would produce. Can you talk more about the food and the foodways that are associated with the chestnut? Because I think for a lot of Americans, it's really seen as a holiday treat that's associated with a Christmas carol. But thinking of it as a staple crop for a population, yeah, I would just like to know more about that. It was a staple crop for people as an income stream, for one thing. A range of households and communities would harvest these chestnuts for their own personal use and as a, as a wild cash crop for them to sell and earn some money. Um, and so that supported this whole trade in chestnuts all over the eastern United States. So it was important as a source of money. And it was also important as a source of food. And we're just beginning to learn about the place of chestnut in traditional and, and current foodways. But it's a neat nut because growers have explained to us that it's like a perishable fruit. It's, not, it's less like an oily nut like we think of, like a pecan or a hazelnut or a peanut. It's more like a carbohydrate. Oh. So we've heard people compare it to a potato. It's sweet and it's rich in carbohydrates as well as proteins, but it's not so much an oil source as other nuts are. And so we've heard folks explain that in traditional cultures where people have long had chestnuts and still do, they eat them in quantity. So roast them in quantity and people sit around and eating a platter of them like you would roasted potatoes. Okay. And as we've been meeting more and more people, they have all these savory ways of preparing chestnuts in soups and roasted in savory ways, eaten raw, and also sweet ways of preparing them, roasting, roasting them and, su- and sweetening them. We were just watching The Black Forager yesterday, mm-hmm. and she was microwaving chestnuts. A really modern take. <laughs> she picked one up off the ground, took it home, cut it open because it comes in a very spiky hall. It's really great protection for the nut. And she cut it open, wrapped it in a wet paper towel, microwaved it for 30 seconds, and then just ate it as a snack. And you talked about making flour with it. Yes. Yes. So that's something currently that the cooperative in Michigan does, but it's also something that has its roots in indigenous foodways they would grind down the chestnut into flour and use it in that way as well. And that people across the country still do. Yeah, and I was just reading a book about Italian traditional food ways, and there were all these recipes for chestnut flour cakes, chestnut flour breads. So that's a longstanding approach to yeah. cooking chestnuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is really sweet and flavorful, so you can imagine a lot of different things you could do with it. And large. You know, they're pretty good-sized for in terms of the nut meat. <laughs> you know, they're bigger than a hazelnut and don't have a lot of nooks and crannies to deal with. So, yeah. Yeah, and the ones that I harvested recently, I was very struck by their sweetness. Yeah, even just eating them raw. They taste pretty good. Like, I thought you had to do something to them to eat them, but you don't. Mm. You could just eat them. Right. Eating those, I was like, oh, this is why people say it's like a fruit, because it really is sweet like a fruit.
So there are people who are growing chestnuts in Indiana, but not very many. We went out to Anderson Orchard to, to check that out, and they have a beautiful grove, and the trees are mature. I mean, these are big trees. They're 40 years old. They're 40 years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so they're really different, too, from like an apple crop, it seemed like. You see these kind of young, low trees that people can do a you-pick thing from. And then there's these giant yeah. <laughs> chestnut trees that just don't even fit the landscape. I mean, they do, but not not a you-pick orchard kind of landscape. Yeah, the contrast between those dwarf apple trees and then the big, tall, cascading chestnut trees as this shady grove where you can also go and harvest some food after you're done with the apples and pumpkins. It was just such a pleasurable place to be. And the people who run the orchard have explained to us that they're very content with how it works out for them economically as a you-pick chestnut orchard where people can come gather the nuts from the ground and pay for them by the pound. The way that some growers, commercial and hobbyists, have adapted to what happened with the American chestnut blight is by diving into other cultivars and other strains that have been more successful. So at a place like Anderson's that's selling commercially, those are mostly hybrid and Chinese chestnuts, which do very well ecologically and in terms of yield. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how how is the blight being managed now? And, and how are chestnut growers dealing with that? So they're bringing in cultivars that are resistant to that blight? Yeah, it's like two different conversations taking place around the chestnut mm-hmm. in America. You have efforts to restore the American chestnut by, by breeding it with other varieties and progressively making a variety that's more and more and more derived from American chestnuts, but still has a little bit of the imported chestnuts to give it the resistance to the blight. Uh-huh. Because the situation with the American chestnuts now, it's, it's very devastating. The trees will grow, but then die before they begin to bear, uh. really. And so you can find some young chestnut trees around, but then they succumb to the blight. So there's this effort to bring back the American chestnut, be able to reestablish it genetically. And then the conversation that we're following is separate from that one because we're focused on the food nuts. And this is entirely around um, growers in our country who are raising imported varieties of chestnut because those are not susceptible to the blight and will still bear nuts. The blight is sad. It, It goes under the bark and it attacks the cambium. So it kills everything above ground, but it doesn't attack the roots. So the American chestnut tree will stay alive underground, and it will try to grow and try to come back. But it's not strong enough because the disease is happening above ground. I see. And so you may see some signs and a sapling and get really excited, but it's, it's very unlikely that it will produce again as it once did. But what people are doing, which is really innovative, and people are really excited about it, making these crosses. One example now is the 15th, 16th chestnut. So out of the whole 16th, 15 sixteenths of it is American, and then one sixteenth of it is Chinese chestnut. 
So slowly by slowly, trying to restore what was. And so there's a hope that there's enough of what makes it resistant to the blight in that variety. Exactly. Yeah, okay. and be able to restore the chestnut to, on a more wide scale level to the landscape. And is the idea behind that that the American chestnut, though it is does struggle with the blight, is ultimately more suitable to the landscape than the Chinese cultivars? Like, what is the interest in preserving the American chestnut? (laughs) I mean, I can imagine some reasons, but I'm just wondering if there are practical reasons. There's a huge conversation around this, and I think part of it is nostalgia and a certain patriotism. The American chestnut has a different stature than the imported chestnuts. It's taller. It has a different presence in the canopy and in the forest. And I think, too, you know, the sadness around it. Like, Mm -hmm. it was such a loss in so many ways for people's food ways, for people's income, for the landscapes that had been carefully managed for millennia to support the growth of chestnuts for the American chestnut to be completely obliterated. It's like the story of heartbreak, and people want to heal it. So that is part of the inspiration. I am not familiar enough to know how close they might be to being able to have nuts from the American chestnut. I think we're a few steps away. Yeah. But there's like really energized networks of people around the country who are working on this. And we've been grateful to get to learn from them and at the same time place our focus on these imported chestnuts, which are the ones that people are using now to raise actual chestnuts. My guests in the studio today are Julia Valiant and Olivia Shoemaker, talking about their research on tree nut crops in Indiana. We'll hear more from them after a short break. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats, and our topic today is Midwestern tree nut crops with a focus on chestnuts. And I'm talking with researchers Julia Valiant and Olivia Shoemaker. I asked Julia to tell the story of how she first got interested in nut crops and what her vision is for the future of tree nuts in Indiana. Yeah, years ago I heard about some research that I think was led by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, where they did this big analysis looking at the agricultural land of planet Earth and looking at all the land we have put right now to annual staples such as soybeans and corn, and to a lesser extent wheat. And their analysis looked at what could we be raising nutritionally on this land if we were to instead put it to raising chestnuts and hazelnuts? Could we raise as much protein and could we raise as much fat and could we raise as many calories and carbohydrates as we do now? And I recall the answer being yes. In fact, we can raise more. We can feed the world better through these perennial staple tree crops than we're managing to feed the world now through soybeans and corn and wheat. 
which have really harsh environmental consequences as well as nutritional and ecological. And so that has stayed with me over the years as an inspiring story. And then just from starting to learn from the members of the Indiana Nut and Fruit Growers Association about the work they're doing and the work they'd like to see happen in Indiana, we were able to put together an idea for a project which the Indiana State Department of Agriculture decided to fund to take stock of what's happening around Indiana now with tree nuts and learn what the next steps are in encouraging more growers and landowners to get into raising these tree crops. I mean, immediately what I think of is when I think of converting row crops to tree crops, I think of the time. I think of how long it takes for a tree to bear fruit or nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. People have estimated the number of years you need to wait before the trees are bearing. And depending on how you approach it, whether you graft the tree or just wait for the rootstock to start bearing, it's five years, six years, 10 years. And certainly our incentive mechanisms in agriculture right now are not set up to support people through that long-term transition. So there there are calls by leaders in this conversation to establish more ways to help people to invest in producing perennial crops on their farms. And then there are other ways in which investors who would like to support agricultural transitions to organic or to perennial can invest in helping farmers and landowners to transition what their land is raising over time. Sort of like venture capitalism or having outside investors in your operation. I've heard it referred to as patient patient capital or Uh patient investment, like it's going to take some time to... Or loan mechanisms that where you, a farmer can borrow money and there are no expectations for payback to begin at all until several years down the road. Okay. And the interest is not accruing in that time. So, you know, novel mechanisms for how to help people make that leap. We were excited to get to go visit a pecan orchard down near the Ohio River that was planted in 1940. This was so beautiful, these 80-year-old pecan trees swaying over us and these goats grazing through them. And lots of conversations around the promise of pecans for Indiana. There are varieties now that really can do commercially well here. Lots of claims about how much money you can earn off of pecans. Lots of rumors that I feel like our research has kind of gone around and, and like dis- dispelled rumors one by one <laughs> about the promise of pecans. Like we heard about a pecan farmer in Illinois who really does have this great commercial pecan operation where they crack and shell and... Um, process the pecans on their farm. They have this great farm store, and they vend all over the si- all over the state. And we had heard that he was very systematically taking land out of soybeans and corn every year and putting it to pecan trees 
because that was working out for him economically. We had heard this from a few people. Yeah, when we went your there. dream come true. Exactly. Yeah. So we like drive to <laughs> Illinois to get this story. He's not doing that. He is not doing that. He tried it once, um, converted, I think maybe an acre patch. And now it's like his test plot, but it's not what he uses for production. Okay. And what he's doing there is he's taking woodlots because they have a lot of native growing pecans there over by St. Louis near the Mississippi River. And he's managing them for pecans. So he's cutting out other trees and creating more favorable conditions for the pecan trees to grow in. I see. That's what he's mainly doing. You know, partially because he's so bought into producing commodity soybeans and corn because he is also an established row crop farmer. Right. And has invested his career in that. And it's hard to make the shift from letting go of your investment in that and investing in a different production system. Yeah, that makes sense. We met another woman who has really taken over in stewarding her grandfather's land on which he grew for hobby for a long time. And she has this vision and has really taken the steps in connecting with local retailers, cafes, and restaurants who want to buy pecans from them and who want to sell them. But they've run into another bottleneck, which is that they don't want to do the work of breaking the nuts out of their shells. And so what those co-ops have to offer is shared machinery. Mm-hmm so that people on both sides win and that you don't have to say no to these opportunities because you would have access to the technology that you need and things could work a lot more smoothly. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What about tree crops and water usage? When I imagine sort of a forest, you know, like the pecan forest that you were talking about that's something that's already established but when I think about almond farming Mm -hmm. in the Central Valley of California Mm -hmm. I think oh my gosh that's using a huge amount of water and I've heard I've just been hearing about that so is there any we have in terms of getting trees established especially we haven't heard anybody talk about irrigation or the demand the trees demand for water they have described their management approaches, and I can't think of anyone who's talked about watering. I can't. They're talking about mowing. They're talking about spraying. They're talking about pruning. They're talking about harvesting. With Indiana's 40-some inches of rain yeah. that we get every year. <laughs> yeah, we're not the Central Valley, are we? <laughs> no. Of all of the places we've been to, I don't think I've seen one irrigation system set up which is also another beautiful thing about perennials that have been established for a long time. When they're not intensively managed, like maybe 1,000-acre almond farms are in California, their roots go really deeply and have this really beautiful ability to bring up nutrients and water from the soil that has been building for a long time, especially in diversified systems. Yeah. We wrapped up our conversation by talking about the long-term vision that's required when thinking about planting tree crops. You have to be thinking beyond yourself to plant a nut grove, I think. Definitely. And you also have to just start, because if you wait and contemplate it, you're missing precious time. 
So I've heard a few growers say like, okay, I just had to dive in and do it and stop thinking about it. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for coming in to talk with me about this. Thank you. You're so welcome, Kate. Thanks for having us here. I've been speaking with Julia Valiant and Olivia Shoemaker about their nut tree research with the Sustainable Food Systems Science Group at Indiana University. I was excited about experimenting with the chestnuts I brought home. I roasted them in my oven, not on an open fire. And I noticed that if they spent too long in the oven, they turned hard as rocks when they cooled. It must have something to do with their sugar content. So I quickly chopped up one batch before they cooled with the intention of grinding them into flour, which I eventually did in our spice grinder, which is actually a repurposed coffee grinder. I ended up damaging the blades. That's how hard the roasted chestnuts are. I made a batch of thin cookies following a Linzer recipe and substituting chestnut flour in place of the almond flour. They were tasty, but I realized after the fact that I should have either ground the flour finer or sifted it before baking with it. There were a few bits in the cookies that I feared could break a tooth. We started referring to them as tooth crackers. But the flour did have a nice, distinctive, sweet flavor. I'll have to give it another try next year. And maybe I can use a proper grain mill instead of a coffee bean grinder. I'll keep you posted. In the meantime, check out all the information about tree nuts in Indiana on the Sustainable Food Systems website. We have a link at eartheats.org, where you can also find more recipe ideas for chestnuts. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Lenine, Hwasan, Julia, and Olivia. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.